0: Um, My name is Nikki Collier, and I am um, with uh, Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health Quality Assurance Unit. Um, So it's me, and I'm not by myself here, and also um, my um, counterpart. (laughs) And Jen, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself.
1: Hi Jennifer Hallman from Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health Quality Assurance Unit with Nicky, <laughs> um,
0: and so we'll be kind of tag teaming this. Um, uh, so um, if so, yeah, welcome to Documentation Resources Reminders and Tips. Welcome um, FSP providers. Okay, so. Um, Just to start, just to make sure it's clear, um, this is not meant to be a comprehensive training on documentation and claiming. We'll just be, it's only two hours, so that would be really hard to do to fit everything into two hours. Um, So we'll just be highlighting some of the basic guidelines and minimum requirements for providing and being reimbursed for Medi-Cal specialty mental health services in Los Angeles County. Um, so if you want a full, uh, more comprehensive list of the rules and requirements, um, please see the Organizational Providers Manual, uh, the Guide to Procedure Codes, and the LA County DMH Policy 401.03, which you can access um, all of those through the LACDMH website at dmh.lacounty.gov um, on the quality assurance web page, and we'll actually be talking more about those resources um, in a minute. Um, and first, I just wanted to talk a little bit about how we structured this presentation. Um, when we were approached to do a documentation-related training for FSP providers, we took a look at some of the questions and issues that had been raised by FSP providers um, that had been like collected and gathered. And based on that, it seemed that in addition to directly answering those questions and speaking to those issues, it would also be helpful to spend some time making sure that all of you are aware of some of the resources that are available to help support you as specialty mental health service providers um, in your documentation and that it would also be helpful to highlight some of the basic requirements and guidelines that are in place for providing, documenting, and claiming for medi specialty mental health services. So we just kind of tried to like <laughs> package things uh, together that we thought would be um, helpful given what your questions and issues that were raised were. So um, to start, um, so if you can go to the next slide. Um, we'll start out talking about documentation and claiming related resources. Um, and, and, and there's a lot that's available online. If you go to the DMH, um, LAC DMH internet site, that's dmh.lacounty.gov, um, there we have a quality assurance webpage um, that is full of helpful documentation and claiming related information and resources for providers and practitioners. So we're gonna take a little time to highlight some of those key resources. Um, All of what you see listed here on the slide can be accessed from the QA webpage, except for that last bullet, policies. Um, Any QA or documentation related policies, um, they're they're on a different page. So when we get to that slide, um, I'll show you uh, where to find those. So this kind of just shows you how to get to the QA web webpage. Um, you'll go to, so after you go to the DMH internet site, you'll go to four providers, and then under four providers, you go to administrative tools, and under administrative tools, you'll see insurance, so you click on that. Um, and when you do, on the left-hand side of the screen, you'll see a list of different links and subpages, pages. Um, and so we're gonna kind of hit some of those key ones. So we'll start with manuals and guides. So if you click from the QA webpage on manuals, um, it'll take you here and um, and I've highlighted the key, like some of the, I think, the manuals that you would most um, frequently reference that might um, uh, address your questions. So when there are QA related questions, documentation questions, um, what we encourage, or what we're hoping is that your first stop is, is, is here. Um, and um, the primary manual that's probably gonna answer a lot of your questions, I um, have a lot of information on requirements is the organizational provider's manual. So the full name of it is the Short Doyle Medi-Cal Organizational Providers Manual, but we call it the org manual. Um, And what it does is it outlines the requirements and guidelines for the documentation and reimbursement uh, of Medi-Cal specialty mental health services. So included um, in the manual, it includes the criteria and rules for reimbursement Um, the content elements and timeframes that are required uh, for assessments, treatment plans, and progress notes. And it also defines the types of service and service components that are covered under Medi-Cal Specialty Mental Health Services, as well as the different modes of service, including outpatient um, and also services claimed based on blocks of time uh, such as crisis stabilization, day treatment. Also, just to note that the current lists of Medi-Cal covered diagnoses or included diagnoses, those are no, no longer kept in the back of the org manual. Um, they So the copy that's currently um, posted does have it, but it's not the current list. And the new um, updated version, which should be coming out sometime later this month. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jen. Um, we'll have no appendix at all, um, but that same page, so right underneath where the org manual is, um, the link for that underneath, you'll see the included diagnosis list for outpatient, and then under that for inpatient. Um, but USFSP FSP providers, you're providing outpatient services, so that the the outpatient included diagnosis list would be the one that you would reference. So that's the most current list. So um, between now and when that new version of the org manual comes out, make sure if you need to reference the included diagnosis list that you're referencing the list on the page, just that's a separate link and not the one that's in the manual. And then after the new one comes out, you know, there'll be nothing and there'll be no appendix in that one. Next key resource or key manual is the Guide to Procedure Codes. So this guide lists and defines the procedure codes required to claim for specialty mental health services. It outlines the requirements and guidelines for using the codes. Um, It includes which disciplines are allowed to claim for a given service, um, what, what activity a code covers or includes, and what code modifiers um, are um, required. Also, just a note, regarding the guide to procedure codes and the org manual, they are updated periodically um, to incorporate new requirements or other changes. So if you download or save a copy of them, we recommend that you periodically check the version that's online to make sure that you're referencing the most current version. Um, uh, so for example, the guide to procedure codes was recently updated, um, maybe like a little over a week ago. So if you previously saved a copy of the guide to procedure codes, um, make sure that you go to the website and access the new, the new updated version and that that's the version that you're referencing. And then, Um, with the org manual that will be coming out soon, the updated version, so just make sure that you're periodically checking the website um, to make sure that you're referencing the most current manual um, since requirements and um, do change and get updated. So another helpful um, or key reference manual is the Community Outreach Services manual or COS manual. Um, which defines what community outreach services are. Um, So it outlines the requirements and guidelines for the documentation and reimbursement of COS and lists and defines the procedure codes that are used to claim for COS. This would have noticed is that this manual doesn't get up. It's not, there isn't a need, I guess, maybe, but it, it isn't updated as frequently. Um, But I think with all of the manuals and resources on the manuals page, you just probably want to get in the habit of just periodically checking to make sure because there's new stuff um, being um, posted and updated all the time. So it's really good to kind of keep up with that. Okay. So also on our QA webpage, um, there are a lot of training resources available Um, and whenever we can we try to publicize this page and make sure providers and practitioners are aware that these training resources exist and that they know how to access them so from the QA web page when you click on training you'll see these links so you'll see um, training for directly operated providers using IBIS uh, general training for legal entities and juvenile justice halls slash camps. Um, You'll see a module on intensive care coordination. And we also include the PowerPoint of that that training and also a a PowerPoint on targeted case management needs evaluation. Um, So that's what you'll see when you click on that page. Um, So the first link on the page, the one for directly operated Um, will take you to a full page of training resources for directly operated providers and practitioners. Um, So here, um, directly operated um, practitioners are able to access a series of training modules and they're organized by discipline, um, which is really, I think really helpful. And, um, and they're required in order for them to get authorized to have access to uh, the, the LECDMH um, electronic health record system called IBIS. Um, some of the modules include um, an introduction to IBIS and documentation, scheduling calendar in IBIS, episodes in IBIS, one um, on in indirect services, if that includes COS understanding medical necessity, assessing and diagnosing and treatment and progress notes. So lots of, of um, training on, on that page for, for DOs. And some of the information is also general, um, just documentation and claiming requirement information. So some of it is, is helpful for any provider, but it is very specific to, to DOs. Um, and then that next link on the training page will take you to a full page of training resources for legal entity contract providers and DMH programs who do not document an IBIS. Um, So here, um, there's a training module series that covers reimbursement and claiming, assessment, treatment plans, progress notes, and also targeted case management and rehabilitation services. Um, This page also features documentation and claiming related handouts that assist with understanding what, what's reimbursable, what's not, um, has some intervention lists that kind of can assist with documentation. Um, so lots of, of helpful resources here. Um, and then the other thing that happens with these training, um, these full pages is that they're always being updated so we're adding, um, adding training resources, adding new videos and modules, um, and also updating. So when things change, we may update, uh, you know, update uh, the the module to incorporate the new new requirements or the changes. So also on our QA webpage, another really helpful resource are the webinars. Um, and so the webinars are recorded broadcasts on quality assurance related information that's disseminated to help providers learn about new information or get clarification um, on things like access to care, network adequacy, CANS, and PSC, or like requirements for ICC, IHBS, TBS, and TFC. Um, so it's a variety of, of topics there. Um, it's very, very helpful. A lot of questions get addressed in those webinars. Okay. So also what seems to be helpful for providers are the bulletins um, that our QA unit puts out and also the frequently asked question documents. Um, So these um, they're you know very helpful um, written in for you know written updates um, to help like clarify requirements and address questions. So the QA so there's QA bulletins um, and and those uh, we put out um, when new requirements come out or to provide clarification. So for example, when we're implementing a new requirement that's come out uh, from the state. Department of Healthcare Services, we put out a bulletin about what the requirement is and any related guidance or deadlines for providers to to implement it. Um, Also, there are clinical forms bulletins, um, and those are updates on the release and use of new and updated clinical forms, um, as well as forms that are no longer in use. So for new forms, they detail what the form is, you know why would you know what do you use it for the implementation implementation date so when it's effective um, and needs to you know needs to be used and implemented um, and also the type of form it is meaning like for example one type of form is a required elements form and that means that there are specific required elements that need to be included in the form um, for contract providers so for directly operated they need to use. They're required to use the form. It's a DMH form um, for um, for contract providers. Required element forms need to. They just need to make sure that all of the required elements are in the form. So the bullet, the clinical forms bulletin explains, you know, what type of form it is, and then the frequently asked questions documents. Um, these are compiled lists of. The LACDMH QA unit's responses to questions um, that are raised by providers regarding QA related requirements and they focus on a variety of topics often they're issued in response to recent information or updates um, that were put out by the QA unit. Um, So we put out a bulletin and then there's lots of questions and then um, we, we address those questions in our like countywide QAQI meeting, but um, we also, there's just some get some of the same questions. So we put those most frequently asked questions in a document. And that's also helpful um, and a good, you know, uh, place to go first um, to address, you know, might address the question that you have. So this just shows where you find the QA bulletins and also the FAQs. So, and, and the clinical forms bulletins. So at the top we have, um, so after you click on bulletins, you'll see, um, a, you know, links to QA bulletins, clinical forms bulletins um, there, and, 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 and also um, medical certification bulletins, but we're not really focusing on that. So, but QA bulletins, you'll see there that they are um, listed, they have a number, And that first part of the number is the year that they came out. So all the ones that come out in 2021, start with with 21 and then dash 01, dash 02. Um, And then, so you'll see that's how you can find them. Um, And we don't, I don't know if we ever remove them. So it's a really long list. There's lots of QA bulletins. Um some of them are not necessarily about new requirements, but just providing clarification on specific issues that come up and questions that we um, often get asked. And so um, sometimes that's a good place to go if you have questions um, to see if, oh, was there ever a bulletin that was put out about that? Um, and so it's really, really helpful. You can do a keyword search and it will take you to all of the, the bulletins that have like whatever you searched in the title. Um, and then also, so when we put out a new bulletin and there's lots of questions, a new bulletin about new requirements and there's lots of questions, then we've been, what we've been doing is putting the frequently asked questions document related to that bulletin right next to it, which has been really, really helpful. Um, so that's also where you'll find the FAQs. Um, you can also find the FAQs on, we have a COVID-19 um, uh, link on the QA web page. So there are some there, but most of the FAQs you're going to find here on the QA bulletins page. And then with the clinical forms bulletins, um, when you click on clinical forms, it's very similarly, similar, similarly, um, can't speak. Um, so based on the year that it came out, starts with 20, you know, so for this year, all the clinical forms bulletins are 21 21- dash or zero zero 02, um, et cetera. So, so that's how you find those. Okay. So these are the clinical forms. This is where um, we keep PDF um, uh, PDFs of clinical forms. It's organized by the type of or category of forms. So assessments, treatment plans, progress notes. Um, you go under you know what category you're looking for, and look for the form that you need. Um, and just a long list of, of forms, um, and I think it's fairly fairly user friendly. But we do get lots of questions about where to find forms, so sometimes it could be a little little challenging finding where where to locate a form. Okay, so policies, so. And I think this copy, I might've put this in, I'm sorry, Satya. <laughs> I realized that where the reference of where to locate the policies had changed and we, I still had the old location and how you get there on this slide. So I took that out, so sorry about that. And I can send this to you um, so you can share it with, with the, um, the attendees later. Um, But so I took that out and then on the next slide, it shows, I'll show you guys where to find the policies. So although, um, so DMH, LAC DMH policies are also helpful for providers. Although DMH policies are not only specific to QA, to quality assurance, there are some that mostly pertain to documentation and claiming, and therefore they're worth mentioning as as a helpful resource um so we've um, so we've mentioned here some of the primary ones uh 401.02 which is the clinical records contents and documentation entry policy it has requirements for what needs to be in a chart requirements for how long clinical records are to be kept and requirements for timeliness of documentation and then also we have 401.03 which is our clinical documentation for all payer sources, which contains requirements for assessments, treatment plans, progress notes, co-signatures, et cetera. And then on this next slide, it shows where, how to get there. So, um, and that recently changed. So you would go to four providers and then under four providers, you click on policies, procedures and parameters and it'll take you right there to the page. Um, You can click on open all and just kind of explore. It'll just open all the policies, um, list them all. Uh, Or if there's a specific policy that you're looking for, which often that is kind of the situation I I notice with providers they are looking for a specific policy or I'm looking for a specific policy, um, then you just put that policy number in or the title or maybe like a keyword um, and then it, you can, it'll hopefully you'll be able to find it. Um, so that's how you access policies. Um, and so, yeah, just in regards to the resources, these are really helpful. And I would say maybe half of the questions that we in the QA unit receive are questions that can be addressed with some of these, you know, by going to some of these resources. So I think it's helpful to know that they're there, that they exist and to, to utilize them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's more support, more help, because um, I know that, you know, documentation can be challenging sometimes to, to you know, to navigate. Um, so the other thing that we thought would be helpful is to kind of highlight some of the basic requirements um, for documenting and claiming for Medi-Cal Specialty Mental Health Services. So we're gonna just kind of spend a little bit of time doing that. So specialty mental health services. So services that are provided through LA County DMH are Medi-Cal specialty mental health services. Um, And those are services that are provided by specialists in mental health um, to Medi-Cal beneficiaries who have mental health conditions that require a specialist in mental health to to address. Um, Because they are specialty mental health services, all interventions provided and claimed to LACDMH, um, clients must be focused on the client's mental health needs. So here are the basic requirements for what makes a service reimbursable. First, it needs to meet uh, medical necessity and that needs to be documented in the assessment and reflected in the client treatment plan. There are a couple of exceptions to that um, and those are assessments. So purpose services for the purpose of assessment um, don't need to meet medical necessity and also crisis intervention services. Um, also to be reimbursable, a service needs to be covered. So it needs to be covered under Medi-Cal specialty mental health services and, and provided, you know, so that the service that was provided needs to be a covered service. And also um, the documentation of that service, of providing that service needs to be consistent with medical necessity. So those are two basic things that you need, um, medical necessity to be met and for it to be a covered service and to document it consistent with medical necessity. To meet medical necessity, there are some criteria that have to be met. So for adult clients, um, the client has to have impairments that are a result of an included diagnosis and then interventions that address those impairments. Uh, Children and youth with EPSDT benefit must have an included diagnosis and then have a condition that requires specialty mental health services in order to improve. And then the mental health condition can't be something that can be better addressed in the physical healthcare-based system. It has to be something that requires a specialist in mental health. So that's that's key in meeting medical necessity. So here is what's covered under Medi-Cal, Specialty Mental Health Services. Here's a list of covered services. So, on the left are the primary, the four primary outpatient um, mode services, Um, the larger categories mental health services, med support services, crisis intervention, targeted case management. And in those broader categories are the components, the the reimbursable um, uh, services under that for that purpose, for the purpose of, let's, let's say, for mental health services. Um, You can do assessment um, if you're within scope of practice, um, plan development, therapy, rehab, collateral. So this is essentially the list of what's covered. And then on the right are also covered services, but they're considered special population, um, specialty mental health services. So that includes intensive care coordination or ICC, therapeutic behavioral services or TBS, intensive home-based services or IHBS, and therapeutic foster care or TFC. So how do you demonstrate that the criteria for reimbursement were met in your documentation? How do you show that? So it starts with the assessment. So the clinician documents what the symptoms, the behaviors uh, of the client are, and they formulate a diagnosis. And then they identify and document the impairments that are a result of that, include a diagnosis, um, and they do that in order to establish medical necessity. And then um, they also identify what are the client's needs, what are their strengths. That information, with that, it's pulled into the treatment plan around, that's what the treatment plan is developed based on or around. Um, so the objectives need to be of the treatment plan need to be linked to the symptoms, behaviors, and impairments that were identified in the assessment. And then the interventions um, need to um, address those objectives. So uh, interventions that, are, you know, there need to be things that we, we as mental specialty mental health service providers can do Um, that will address those objectives and help the client reach those objectives. Then with that, we use the treatment plan as a guide for the services that we provide. And then we document those services um, that we provided in the the progress note. And the services that we're providing need to be covered services, or at least that we claim for, those need to be um, covered services. So clinician does the assessment. Based on the assessment, we develop a treatment plan with the client um, participating. And then we use that treatment plan as uh, the guide for the services that we deliver, the covered services that we deliver to the client. Okay, so here are just kind of all on one slide here. Um, usually, in our larger, uh, longer trainings, we take you know take up more time and more slides to, um, to discuss the requirements for the assessment. But we'll just we'll just be doing this on one slide each. So um, so for the assessment, we've listed here the required elements. So these are the information elements that need to be included in the assessment. Um, and these are requirements for medi Specialty Mental Health Services. So the assessment needs to include a presenting problem, um, the client's strengths, mental health history, risks, medications, um, any substance exposure or substance use, um, medical history, relevant conditions and psychosocial factors, um, a mental status exam, a clinical formulation, and a diagnosis. And now, so in the org manual, it it goes into a lot more detail and kind of describing um, with more detail what that information needs to be. Um, So definitely recommend reviewing that and making sure your um, clinicians are familiar with all of the information that needs to be gathered for the assessment. Um, also highlighted here that there's a new requirement um, for a targeted case management needs evaluation um, to be completed um, upon determination of medical necessity. So it needs to be done once you know medical necessity is determined. And then it also needs to be done annually for clients that are receiving targeted case management. Um, and then I think we put the link to the bulletin on that um, here on the slide. Okay, so in terms of requirements for the treatment plan, um, here are the required elements that must be included in the treatment plan. So uh, a statement of uh, the long-term goal, usually in the client's own words, um, the goal or treatment objectives, um, and those have to be specific, observable and slash or specific quantifiable. So it has to be something that um, you can observe or, and be measured um, related to mental health, to the client's mental health needs and functional impairments as a result of their included diagnosis. Also needs to um, have proposed interventions. So these are the things that we think will help the client reach their objectives. Um, it has to, uh, so we have to identify what the type of service and also the specific um, interventions, the modality, and the specific um, details about the interventions that we're going to be providing, how frequent, um, and the duration of less than 12 months. Um, and then also evidence that the client was offered a copy of the plan that's a requirement. Um, any linguistic and interpretive needs. And there are um, required staff signatures um, that need to be in the treatment plan. And in the signature, it has to have the client, the, I'm sorry, the, the, um, the staff's name, their discipline or license, and their, if they have a license number or ident- identification number, that needs to be included, and then also the date. And then the client or responsible adult signature. Um, which is the evidence that they were involved in the development of the treatment plan that they participated in, and that's required. Um, and then for, for more details on that, um, definitely go to the organizational providers manual and it kind of it has more detail and information about the treatment plan requirements. So in terms of the progress note, we've listed here what the what elements need to be included in the the progress note, what's required. So date of service, procedure code, duration of service, Um, for group, the total number of clients that were present or represented, Um, any of the relevant aspects of client care, clinical decisions, referrals to community resources and other agencies, um, the interventions that were applied, um, the client's response to those interventions, um where those interventions were provided, So where was the service provided? Um, any follow-up care, um, if appropriate, um, you know, in a discharge summary, and then the staff signature. And like I said before, that signature needs to include um, their discipline or license and the license number or identification number and the date. Um, okay. So I'm going to go ahead and toss it to Jen.
1: All right. Thank you, Nikki. And I'm going to talk through first some general documentation tips. I think one of the things that we often hear is about, um, you know, people always hear from QA, don't do it this way. Um, and so what we've been trying to do is provide more information about how to do it. Um, so that's what we're going to go through now. And this is a lot of this um, material is taken from online trainings that Nikki um, mentioned earlier. So these, these are all available on our QA website. So the first one, and I think for all of us, um, particularly those of us who are clinicians, um, it's, it's an obvious one, is to document risks. Um, so your documentation should clearly reflect that the pr- practitioner assessed for and addressed any safety concerns um, and include what the client said and how he or she um, said it. And, you know, one comment that I'll make about this is we'll often see documentation that just says client reports no SIHI. And for a client who's never had SI or HI um, that might be okay. That that you know that nothing wrong with that, um, but we often see it even documented that way for somebody who maybe has several hospitalizations for suicidal, um, you know, plans and threats. So what we've provided here is kind of a, an alternative here, where you're giving a little bit more information and documenting what's going on and, and what safety plan is in place. Um, And so you want to make sure that you document all relevant interventions provided and clinical decisions made to address those risks. And again, I I just want to stress that for clients that have a history of some of these um, risk factors, you probably want to do a little bit more than what we typically see, which is just no SIHI. The second tip that we have, and this I have to say, is one of my favorite, just from a billing perspective, is to keep the treatment plan in mind. Um, and so, you know, really encouraging staff to review the treatment plan prior to meeting with or calling the client or significant support person, so that you can have that in mind while you're doing the service as well as um, while you're documenting. Um, so, and a um, a tip that we provide is instead of just saying to the client, how are you, um, which is kind of their typical thing that we do when we call somebody, um, is to say, how are you doing in relation to, and then whatever is on their treatment plan. Um, when we ask somebody, how are you doing, and this happens to myself in my own life, um, is Whatever just happened to me is what I'm most likely going to respond with right? Um, but when we're contacting clients, we really want to get them focused back in on what, what's going on with their treatment plan, what is um, impacting their mental health, and those factors. And so when you change how you ask that question, you're going to get a slightly different response. Um, and then that's also going to help you um, to document a reimbursable service. So the example here um, on the non-billable side is we have called client to check in, Client said she was doing okay, reminded of upcoming appointment. Um, That would not be a billable service. But on the other side, um, we have called client to monitor his anxious symptoms and to practice the relaxation techniques as described on his treatment plan. So you're already laying out that this is tying back to the treatment plan. And as Nikki was talking about, that's one of the key things with specialty mental health services is we have to tie it back to the client's treatment plan and to their mental health symptoms and behaviors. Um, And then in this example, we could then go on to some other techniques um, that were addressed during that contact, but by just changing that intro question when you contact the client that can kind of help shape what you're going to do as well as your documentation. The third tip that we wanted to mention is using a structured format. And we often see, um, you know, people, I think GERP is probably the most frequently used one that we see. There's many others that work. Um, Here we also have the the PAIP one. We also have the SOAP um, format. So there's different ones that you can use. But these help provide a little bit more structure To the progress note, we've also noticed that when these um, structured formats are used, that we also see a lot more um, concise documentation. I think, you know, when you don't have that structure, we tend to see these long narratives, which take up a lot of time to write. Um, But by using one of these formats, it kind of helps keep the documentation tight and to the point. and it it makes sure that the intervention is clearly stated. And we do wanna point out that we do not have a required format um, for progress notes. Um, So you can use anything that you want. Certainly talk to your agency because I know some agencies have a requirement to use one. Um, There are some types of contacts where they don't really fit well into um, these types of more structured notes. I think TCM is one I always structure um, struggled to fit into the GERP format, um, but certainly something to consider as you're doing your documentation. The fourth tip is to document the intervention provided, and this sounds simple. Um, But this is actually one of the the biggest ones that we see people struggling with. And so this is really about focusing on describing the active interventions that you provided rather than the passive activities. And so we see a lot of notes that, um, for example, say things like provided a safe environment, which is very important to do. Um, But that's not really an active intervention that then is going to impact a a change um, that Medi-Cal would like to see. Um, Other um, examples that we see of kind of these passive activities is validated feelings, provided empathy, provided active listening. Again, all important things to do. But unfortunately, um, from a billing perspective, we really want to see that active intervention. Um, We also really encourage in order to help with that is to start your notes with met with the client for the purpose of and then enter in that service component of what you're doing. And that goes back to the list that Nikki showed that had the different types of services as well as the service components. So therapy, rehabilitation, collateral, um, assessment, et cetera. So met with the client for the purpose of assessment you've already laid it out assessment, that's what you want somebody to pay you for doing. And then they're kind of already have in their mind, okay, that's that's what you did. So it really sets the stage. Um, And then on um, this slide, we have some examples of the various service components within some of the interventions. So for example, met with the client for a purpose of targeted case management, So in um, a note for targeted case management, then you might want to see facilitated linkage, researched appropriate referrals, submitting application materials. So that active linkage that had to be done to get the client connected to those ancillary services. You'll also see met with the client for the purpose of individual rehabilitation So individual rehabilitation is about skill building to help somebody um, improve skills. Um, So taught, practiced, modeled, prompted. Um, We also have role played, problem solving, communication. Um, So those are types of words that we would wanna see in those notes. Uh, Met with the client for the purpose of individual therapy. Um, So then you have the interventions listed there. Um, And then the last one is met with the client's um, significant support. So this would be parent, sibling, et cetera, um, for the purpose of providing collateral and then keeping in mind there with collateral is you're teaching that individual of how to work with the client. So you're again looking for taught, modeled, provided psychoeducation, role played, et cetera. So tip number five is to be objective. So consider the facts and keep in mind how information will affect the client's treatment plan, um, document the client's specific behaviors rather than using non-specific psychotherapeutic jargon, which I feel like we just used right there in that um, statement. Um, so really kind of staying away from technical sounding clinical terms. And, and I think the reason we say that Um, isn't because those aren't good words to use, but I think we also have to keep in mind that we are in an age where um, we really have to remember that that chart belongs to the client, and with the interoperability rules that have recently gone into um, place, Client access is going to become more and more common, even for your FSP clients. And so we have to be always documenting in the perspective of thinking about client is going to see this note. So I want to make sure I'm as objective as, po- as possible. And so, um, you know, if you're, if you're putting in your note, um, client was hostile, for example, you know, if a client got that note, they could argue with you, or, or they could challenge you on that and saying, I wasn't hostile. Um, but if you documented, he shouted, and then put in quotes, here's what he did when his mother began talking during the session. You know, that that's an observation of something that happened, not putting a judgment on what it is. And so I think this you know, from a being clear um, to anybody reading the note, but then also from the perspective of that, clients are going to have a lot more access to the charts. And I was on a, a webinar, a national webinar um, yesterday as a participant, not a presenter. Um, and one of the psychiatrists was, speak, was saying is, we just all have to accept that um, clients are gonna see their charts now. And we just have to accept that because that's where we're going. Um, and so we need to think of our documentation with that in mind. So this one, again, seems simple, but it's, it's actually really hard to do. Is um, And it, the tip is to be clear and concise um, and making sure that you're documenting all necessary information, but avoiding extraneous details. And I think we Very frequently see um, notes that are really long, and there's a lot of information there about what's going on with the client. Um, And then you're kind of trying to tease it out and get those kind of those key points that are done in the note. And so, you know, from a continuity of care perspective, you know, if your notes really long, you know, people aren't going to read through that whole note in order to get what they need to know. But also from simply the amount of time that it takes to document all of that information. So really trying to think of like what are the key points that somebody picking up this chart would need to know or that I would need to know next time I pick up the chart, but really kind of honing in and kind of doing more of a summary versus like a long narrative of what's going on. And we'll talk about collaborative documentation a little bit later, but I think this is also one of those areas where collaborative documentation is really a benefit because with collaborative documentation, you're doing it with the client. Um, at the end of a session, you're kind of just saying, Hey, here's what we did today. Um, and then, and I'm going to write that down. And if you're, you know, if you're writing down every single thing that the client talked about in your notes, they're going to say, I was here. I know that stuff. I live it all the time. And, and that's not what they're gonna wanna see in their note, right? So I think from the perspective of providing clear and concise documentation, I think the collaborative documentation um, training is really helpful in getting to that point. And there's an example here, I'm not gonna read it, um, but you can kind of see it there. The next tip that we have for you is to include adequate and relevant details. Again, kind of an obvious one, but making sure that you're including information critical to explaining treatment decisions, but get to the point quickly. So describe the symptoms that the client is reporting. And so it's always finding that balance between putting too much in, but also providing the relevant information that's needed for somebody else. And I and think it, You know, I often find myself um, when I was documenting is kind of having to take a step back and say, okay, what were the really the key points of what just happened? And sometimes I would get stuck. Um, But you just need to kind of keep thinking about what would be key for somebody else to know if they were to pick up this this chart later on. Um, And again, we have an example here um, in the PowerPoint. So tip number eight is be mindful of how you describe the client and other staff. And this goes along with what I was saying earlier about um, clients having a lot more access to their charts as well as um, other people having access to that documentation. So making sure not to use derogatory or pejorative statements to describe clients and do not include complaints about other staff members, whether from the client or by other staff. So um, in one example, um, client's obviously lying about his history, um, and I think these always seem like obvious examples, but unfortunately, you know, we continue to see these. Um, so instead of writing that, right, client's version of his history is at odds with what's written in the previous hospital records, or client stated that the doctor can't do his job and was rude, client expressed frustration when her psychiatrist disagreed with her. So just being mindful of how we're writing it. And um, the, the ninth tip is to use approved abbreviations and acronyms. Um, there, we do have a list of approved acronyms and abbreviations um, for the department. Um, you know, we see this, I think, for you and your program, you might know, you might use terms, you um, But somebody else picking up that chart isn't going to know them. So, you know, take the time to just kind of write it out if it's not one of those um, approved abbreviations um, by the department. Um, So we often get this question, what can staff not within scope of practice to provide therapy and diagnosis claim for? So I think, you know, one of the things we really want to encourage you to do is pull up that guide to procedure codes. We really tried to make it easy to read um, so you can go in there and quickly see who the allowable disciplines are for each procedure code. Um, So you can see here is that um, all disciplines no matter who you are, anybody who's working in our system would be able to provide um, the services listed here. So individual rehabilitation, supported employment, group rehabilitation. Um, And I think it's important just as a note that we should all always kind of keep in mind is that Medi-Cal has the minimum requirement that staff must have a high school diploma or equivalent in order to claim to Medi-Cal. Um, so that's the minimum requirement to claim to Medi-Cal. And then there's also the obviously the element of within scope of practice. So to diagnose obviously would be limited um, in the staff. Um, Other services beyond the individual rehab-supported employment and group rehabilitation that anyone would be able to claim to would be targeted case management, um, plan development, collateral, intensive care coordination, and um, intensive home-based services. And if you have any questions about what those services are or to explain them, um, please let us know. Um, Nikki and I are happy to answer any questions on that. And so another question related to staff not within scope of practice to provide therapy and diagnose is how to document. So this is probably one of the most common um, questions that tend to come up, um, or not even questions, but comments. Um, so we'll often, when we're doing trainings for case managers and um I'm going to use the word paraprofessional staff, which I know is not the the best word to use for that, but I'll use that term for now, is that, you know, are there words that I can't use in my documentation? You know, my supervisors told me that I'm not allowed to use this word or that word. Um, And I would certainly say, you know, from our perspective, there's really not a clear cut rule about this. Um, You know, and we gave some examples here. I think these are ones that have come up as explored, um, processed, anxious, depressed. Um, So we have staff saying, you know, I'm not allowed to use those words. And I think it really comes more into what's the context in using it. Um, So, for example, you know, Nikki and I were talking the other day and I was like, well, I'll have friends that, you know, they're not clinicians. They don't work in the mental health field, but they're explore you know, problems with me, or their process what's going on with me. Um, So I think the word in itself doesn't really mean it's not within their scope of practice, but I think it's being very clear on what they're doing. Um, I would certainly say around anxious or depressed, You know, something that we're often um, advise case managers or paraprofessionals is, you know, maybe instead of saying that word is say, you know, explain what's leading you to believe that. So if you think that the client appears anxious, you know, what's going on with the client that that's making you think that is it that they're, you know, shaking their legs a lot or they're looking around or, you know, if they're depressed, is it because they're tearful? during, um, the session with you? Is it because they have low energy, but describe it instead of using the words, or if the client has said it themselves, like a lot of times clients will come in and they'll say, you know, I feel, I'm feeling really anxious, um, or I feel depressed or what have you is then, you know, write it. And I think this also goes for, you know, other things like auditory hallucinations or, or other things is, you know, I might not write the clients having auditory hallucinations. I might say, you know, client seems distracted and seems like they might be, um, kind of focused someplace else or kind of what's leading you to think that they're having, um, hallucinations while you're meeting with them. And I don't know if there's, you know, if others have comments or questions around that, um, please, um, put them into the chat because I think this is one that there really is no, um, there's certainly no state guidance on this. Um, and I don't think there's really any clear cut rules across the board on this. I think it's kind of everybody's kind of just trying to stay in their lane. And, and we often just tell them, you know, you got to look at it big picture. It's not about one single word that you're using. So the other question we get a lot, particularly for FSP providers is around co-practitioners. And so it's important to remember that if more than one practitioner provides interventions, you have to document each practitioner's involvement in the context of the mental health needs of the client. So many of our programs um, do require two staff to go out on the call or to be involved from a safety perspective. But if we're going to be claiming to Medi Cal, we have to show that both of those staff were providing an intervention. So you have to think of it's always helpful to kind of remind ourselves that Medi Cal um, is a payer. Um, They're an insurance company, just like you have an insurance company. And so when they're going to look at it, they're going to say, why am I paying for this service? Um, And so you do have to document the specific interventions of each person. Um, I will just, you know, point out, I think where we tend to see, um, people struggle with this is they'll kind of do it as like a group is like, oh, we did this. Um, we did this, we did this. Um, and you know, unfortunately medi really likes it kind of broken out as they did this. I did this, um, just kind of putting it as we did this. Um, that is not, um, that's a little bit riskier. I'll, I'll say it that, that way. We have had services disallowed in the past, um, you know, tends to depend on the auditor, um, but we really encourage staff when there's a co-practitioner to just be very specific. This person did X, Y, Z, and this person did A, B, C. You also need to make sure that you're including the specific amount of time of each person's involvement, including the documentation and travel time. So um, in most cases, the the amount of face-to-face time or the time interacting with the clients will be the same for both of them. Um, And then the other's time might be different because one person might have written up the notes, which if we go to the next slide, please, we have a little bit more on that. When practitioners are working together, um, but providing different services, they do need to document in separate notes and claim using the procedure code that matches the services they provided. So this might happen, um, we see this with a, a doctor Maybe you have a doctor and then a a social worker who are providing a service to the client at the same time, or maybe even a social worker and a case manager. Maybe one's working on the targeted case management and the other's doing maybe some rehab or some therapy, um, but they would be doing um, different progress notes in that situation. If they are doing the same service, um, then it can be done in a single note. Um, and then only the signature of the practitioner writing the note is required. Um, and just as a, as a kind of a note, and this is probably not for you, but others in your department, uh, we just thought it would be important to state um, that that the um, Department of Healthcare Services, the state, they made a change recently where we do have to submit separate claims for um, each practitioner. So your um, EHR, your vendor. Um, would have to be able to send two claims for a single progress note. For any of you who are um, directly operated providers, you'll remember as we went um, for about a year or so, we required all co-practitioners to write separate notes because our system did not have the ability to do this. Um, And just, I'm going to say recently, but everything feels recently these days. Uh, we made the change because we updated our EHR to be able to submit two claims based on a single progress note. So that is a new requirement that we just wanted to mention. So we have some examples um, of progress notes um, where we've documented Um, what different people did during the group. This is a group example. So you have this in the slides. I'm not going to read through them, um, but we just thought it would be helpful to provide some examples of um, co-practitioner notes where you have the documentation of what each person did. Next slide, please. I think we have a couple examples of this. So we'll just skip through these, but again, you'll have them in your PowerPoint. Um, so, we get a lot of questions around travel time and transportation. So, a um, couple key points here. So, travel time is reimbursable when the travel is a component of a reimbursable service. So, you drove to the client's home and then you provided rehabilitation. Then you can claim for your travel time. Um, Medi Cal in California is one of the very few places in the entire country that reimburses for travel time as well as for documentation time. Um, So that is just an interesting note about the benefits in our Medi-Cal system. Um, Travel time may be claimed from a provider site to an offsite location, from the practitioner's residence to an offsite location or between two or more offsite locations. Um, However, travel time between provider sites. So if I was going maybe from the FSP provider site to maybe if there was a main clinic that I needed to go to, um, or from the practitioner's residence to a provider site, um, that is not um, reimbursable. So that would essentially be like, I'm working from home today, um, and I have to go into the clinic. You can't claim to do XYZ for the client, um, you would not be able to claim for that time. Um, the amount of time claimed for travel must be reasonable. Um, and so, so, you know, that's the language and the regulations is reasonable. Um, do we have any further guidance beyond that? No. Um, providers and practitioners are responsible for using their own best judgment um, the example I, I've been using for years um, and I, I shouldn't say how many years I've been using it um, is I used to travel to a location on a, on a fairly regular basis to see one of my clients. And, and it usually took me, you know, 15 minutes or so to get there. Um, and then just one day traffic was L.A. It was all of a sudden it took me an hour and a half and. That really, you know, is not reasonable. I mean that that was due to traffic. That was that was kind of an anomaly of what it normally takes to get there. Um, so in that case, I I use my judgment to say, you know what, I'm not going to claim for an hour and a half. That doesn't seem reasonable to be to me. Now, if there was traffic every single day and it took me 30 minutes to get there, then you know it's reasonable to claim. 30 minutes because that's LA. That's where we live and that's how long it takes to get someplace. So again, it's kind of using your own judgment on what seems reasonable. And I know we're often kind of just trying to remind everyone, Medi-Cal's not this um, just big pot of money that's out there and um, we need to claim to it. It's, it's taxpayers' dollars. It's yours. Um, It's all of ours dollars. Um, that are going towards providing these services so we kind of have to keep that in mind um, that it's just I think sometimes we forget that medical is an insurance company um, and it's paid for out of the um, you know the public's taxpayer dollars so just kind of keep that in mind and I think keep that perspective as we're determining what we're going to be billing and documenting or billing for. Um, and then the last point is, you know, transportation alone. Um, so just driving or providing a ride to the client is never claimable. Now, if you are taking the client from, um, say, you met them at the clinic and then you're going to take them to their doctor's appointment. And while you're going there, you are going to be talking to the client about, you know helping them prepare for their that doctor's visit or helping to maybe they're 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 starting to kind of get um nervous about it or they're you know whatever's going on it, it's it's you want to provide an intervention while you're driving there is nothing that says that you can't claim for that time i would just be careful on how you document it is that you want to be clear that your note focuses on helping the client prepare for, in this example, the doctor's visit. And that's what you were doing um, while you were on your way to the doctor's visit. Um, We see, we've seen notes where unfortunately just the way that it's written, it's focused on the fact that you took the client to the doctor's appointment. And I think this goes back to that tip that said, starting your note with met with a client for the purpose of preparing them um, teaching them skills in preparation for their doctor's visit. So you've kind of laid out, we're working on individual rehab while we're preparing for our doctor's visit. Then you can talk about that you were, were in the car. That it's not like you can't say that, but you've just really focused that note on, here's what I want you to pay me for, and I want you to pay me for taking the for the, teaching the skills or managing the client's behavior while we were um, on our way to wherever we were going. So um, addressing co-occurring disorders and physical health concerns in the world of specialty mental health services. So I actually just did a presentation on this. So this is um, front and center in my mind. Um, We're actually also um, having some conversations with the state about this currently. Um, But services provided through LACDMH are Medi-Cal specialty mental health services, and so we have to keep in mind we are about specialty mental health services that are provided by mental health professionals. So everything that we are doing, our primary focus has to ultimately be on those mental health needs, and our documentation has to be reflective of that, so all interventions provided and in claimed to our clients must be focused on the client's identified mental health needs um, for mental health services and medication support services. Interventions aimed solely at the client's substance use or physical health issues are not billable as specialty mental health service. Um, so, within the progress note, you really want to include. Um, reference to the mental health issues. So just because you mentioned substance use or physical health doesn't make it a non-billable service. However, you want to make sure that you're incorporating in that mental health component to it and clearly documenting why a mental health professional needed to do the service. Otherwise, the question would be, well, Why is that client seen by a substance use provider? Um, Because, you know, in the eyes of Medi-Cal, they give money to to the Department of Public Health and SAPSE in order to provide substance use services. So they want to make sure, unfortunately, still we have these separate funding buckets. And so they're kind of making sure that that money is coming out of the, the right funding bucket, so to speak, Sorry, I always talk in terms of buckets. It helps me kind of organize things in my mind. So really thinking about um, when you're documenting is this client's substance use might really be impacting their mental health. It's not enough to just say, oh, I've documented in the assessment that their substance use is impacting their mental health. So now I can work on their substance use. Every single note, if you're claiming it to Medi-Cal has to reference the client's mental health. For um, targeted case management interventions, um, they must clearly address accessing needed medical, alcohol and drug treatment, educational, social, pre-vocational, vocational, rehabilitative or other community services. So, MediCal does give us money to say, hey, I need to get this individual linked to these other services in order to get help. So I need um, to link this client to drug treatment, um, and then I need to make sure that they are linked and monitor that that linkage has occurred because I know if the client relapses or continues to use that's going to have an impact on the client's mental health and other factors going on. So TCM is a really nice um, option for us as specialty mental health services, because it's all about how we can help our clients access these other services outside of us. And I know I'm a social worker. um, And so I, I, you know, I tend, I'm, i do tend to want to do it all myself and and i want to help people it's all coming from a good place but i sometimes i need to remind myself that somebody else is really a specialist in that and my job is to get that whatever it is over to that specialist who can deal with it so we're the specialists in mental health and then we can link them to or get them connected to other people who can are really the experts in other areas Um, If mental health symptoms interfere with the client's ability to participate, access, engage, attend treatment, um, the interventions documented in the progress note must be about the steps taken to get the client connected to the outside substance use treatment or physical health care in order to be billable. So, again, it's all about what did we do to help them get connected as well as stay connected. So remember, we can continue to monitor, hey, are you going to those groups that we talked about? Um, And what's preventing you from going? Or what do you need to help you get there? Um, Those types of things. That's all included under targeted case management. And so like it says here, this could include communication, coordination, referral, monitoring, to ensure that access has happened and then monitoring the client's progress with that access. So again, always kind of keeping in mind, you know, why does a mental health person need to provide this service? um, And what's the connection to the client's mental health condition? Unfortunately, at every contact, we want to kind of be reiterating what that connection is and keep that mental health condition at the the front of our minds while we're documenting and while we're providing the service, I should say. It's not just about the documentation. So collaborative documentation, and I should really have let Nikki do this because her team is the one that is um, leading our collaborative documentation trainings. Um, But collaborative documentation is a process in which clinicians and clients collaborate in the documentation of the assessment, the client treatment plan, and the progress notes, and and I'm guessing I'm I, I, not you, I'm not all in your minds, but you know, I think what we saw when we initially rolled out collaborative documentation with many of our directly operated providers was some of the settings um, with higher intensity and more acute clients were kind of doubtful that collaborative documentation could work for their population. But what we found was it actually that the supervisors and some of the staff doing it is that when they really gave it a chance, They actually found that it was really beneficial because of some of these benefits of collaborative documentation, such as improving client engagement. So for increasing the transparency of what is being documented. So for some of our clients who might not be as trustworthy um, of us, no, of trusting of us, sorry, not trustworthy, um, but as trusting of us. Um, collaborative documentation gave them a chance to see um, what we were writing Um, and so they didn't have to wonder what was going into their chart and so it also would improve that engagement and it also improved outcomes in some situations because sometimes what was found by some of the staff was that what they thought the client was getting out of each session was not what the client actually got out of the session. So when they were doing kind of that summary at the end of it, just that quick wrap up, here's what we went over today, here's what we're going to work on next, um, that the client was like, "That's no, that's not what we did. And it, it created this whole other um avenue of discussion between the staff and the client to get on the same page with what was going on. Um, And then obviously there's other um, benefits around saving practitioners um, time um, and improving documentation accuracy and adherence to requirements. So there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, As I mentioned, we do have collaborative documentation trainings going on currently. Um, And so if you want to send an email to the quality assurance um, mailbox, um, if you have any questions or want to get into a collaborative documentation, um, they'd be able to help you out in that. So a couple of tips um, and comments around documentation efficiency um, and particularly around documentation in the field, Um, keep your paper forms handy. Um, We found with our directly operated staff that having the paper forms, it wasn't always, um, it it didn't always work to have the computer with them. So sometimes having those paper forms to jot down notes um, is really helpful. And also sometimes the system is down. So that is helpful. Um, And using um, collaborative documentation is really helpful. Some of the time management, um, you know, we encourage people to set up a process and a schedule for documentation time. Don't just assume that you're going to have time. I know many people rely on no-shows to get their documentation done. Um, But I, I remember I used to save it all for Fridays which is awful because on Fridays you had a really long week and the last thing you want to do is documentation. You just want to get done. So I quickly changed that schedule um, because I found that was when I was least motivated to do notes. I also found I often forget what I was doing. So, you know, getting into a habit of, you know, you have the session and then save yourself five minutes, 10 minutes to do your documentation I would say the the most important tip I can give um, around efficiency on documentation is really think about what needs to go in it. Um, it doesn't need to be a lot. Um, I know on my team, we often comment is, you know, like you could have a reimbursable Medi-Cal note, you know, in two or three sentences. It doesn't, doesn't have to be a lot. Obviously, you would want to add something in from a clinical perspective, so kind of You know, that continuity of care. Sometimes there's other legal things that you want to throw in there to kind of cover yourself. Um, But it doesn't have to be a lot. And so, really getting it down to what are those key things that I need to document about what I did? And again, you know, I can't stress enough starting your notes with met with the client, met with whoever I did, whatever you were doing for the purpose of, and then it just really sets the stage for the rest of the note. Um, and then again, going with clear and um, concise um, and making sure kind of you're avoiding those extraneous details. I think a, a lot of times we we get really um, into the weeds, um, so to speak, um, as we're reading progress notes and And then you're looking at and you're like, I just really want to know like high level, what'd you do? What were you trying to do with the client? Um, You know, what, what was the intent of that contact? So um, a couple of other things, um, be mindful of missing required elements. Um, and, And I think this is part of, I don't know if any of you are supervisors, but for supervisors, really getting at what are the key things that need to get documented? Like, what are what are those main things? And, and I think Nikki went over it, assessment, treatment plan, progress note. And then I would add on here, here's the one, if I was a supervisor that I would add in, is does it make sense? Um, and I think if from that documentation, if you read it and you're like, oh, yeah, this makes sense of why a mental health practitioner needs to do it, it makes sense of why we did it for this client, um, then I think you're in pretty good shape from a billing perspective. Um, and then I would also go back to those assessment, the treatment plan, the progress notes with what those requirement required elements are um, and focus in on those. You know, we're going to be kind of in this time of change as we're going to be seeing some documentation requirements change over the next year. Um, And you'll see from us in QA a lot more focus on bringing documentation into the part of clinical practice. And so have it be part of what you're doing clinically for the client. Um, I used to in trainings, and I'm going to do it today, um, is reference, and this is going to show my age, but the Michael Jackson case, um, years and years ago, it feels like years and years ago, I don't even know how many years ago it was. um, But it was brought up, documentation was brought up at that trial, because the the doctor, the case did not document. And so other um, doctors got on the stand and said, he did not provide um, a standard of care because part of the standard of care is having documentation of what you did. And I think it's really just important to keep in mind is that documentation really is part of our clinical practice. Um, and so making sure that you're um, adhering to those requirements. Um, Sorry, went off a little on tangent there. Um, when can services um, provided be combined or documented in one note? Um, so when you provide plan development, um, it may be combined into a single progress note with another service. So quite frequently um, you provide a individual rehab service, a therapy service, even a targeted case management service, And then you kind of go into, oh, you know what? We need to update your treatment plan. Um, When you do that, updating the treatment plan is part of plan development. And so you can really do that all in one note. You don't have to write two separate notes for that. Um, Same thing with record review. Um, That can be provided in conjunction with another service. You only need one note. You don't have to separate that out. Um, and then, and this is one that I think many people don't know, um, but it is acceptable with targeted case management that a single service contact may include multiple service activities. Um, so maybe you had to make multiple phone calls throughout the day. Um, for that targeted case management purpose, you can kind of group that all together into a single note um, when they're intended to accomplish the same specific objective. And um, I will note is that we have gotten the question around individual rehabilitation, if that could go into the same targeted case management idea that if you have multiple contacts in a single day, I think that might've come. I think it it did come from one of our FSP calls previously. And so we are um, finalizing a decision on that. And so when the org manual that Nikki referenced Um, comes out in the next couple of weeks, Um, we will have an answer on it. So we have our proposed answer, but I have not yet um, confirmed it with my boss. So I cannot, um, I don't feel comfortable yet saying what that's going to be. But um, I do anticipate that coming out in the next um, release of the org manual. So a couple of words about um, community outreach services. I know with FSP clients, Um, COS is a large component of what is being done. Um, And so COS services are indirect services um, that are provided to engage potential clients, re-engage or keep engaged individuals who are already clients in the mental health system. Um, And so I just want to point out here, because we get this question all the time, is that you can do COS on a client of yours. So if that client, say they are in treatment with you, say they are enrolled in FSP, you're doing direct services, Um, COS can be used to kind of keep that client engaged. And you think of that that work that's being done isn't necessarily really part of their treatment plan, but it's just some of those contacts that you might need to do to keep that client engaged. So that can be done under COS. Um, And these services also promote the benefits of mental health services and provide information to the community um, and non-mental health providers in 24-hour facilities. So that's kind of an added element of COS. So a couple of things to keep in mind um, is if the purpose of the service was to engage the individual or re-engage or keep engaged, um, then COS should be claimed for that service. Um, And as I said, whether the individual is a client or not is not a factor in whether COS should be claimed. Um, COS is not linked to Medi-Cal Um, medical necessity, so you're kind of differentiating between this is part of the client's treatment versus this is something that's to help keep them engaged. And then, um, so COS is not done in response um, to a client's assessment. Um, And then just a last comment about COS, COS is not an avenue for providing direct treatment services to the client, no matter the funding source. Um, so we did have some situations where um, providers were claiming COS saying, oh, well, that's what we have available. So, you know, and then there turns out they're doing like therapy. In one case, they were doing med support. So they're kind of all kinds of things. But those really need to be done as direct services. That's part of the tr- client's treatment. So COS is really, um, again, th- those attempts to engage outreach, um, include somebody into treatment. Um, but it's not the treatment itself. Um, and as always, you can always reach out to us at qualityassurance at dmh.la county and access all of the materials and, and different um, manuals on our website.
0: Yeah. And I just wanted to um, also share that um, we did a little section at the beginning of this on resources, on um, QA-related resources, particularly the ones that um, are documented related and we're actually um, there's going to be a video my team is has been working on a video um that kind of gives you a little bit more than i gave you here um in terms of an introduction to those resources when you would use them on and kind of you know the kind of information um that's that's there so um that's coming you can look out for that that's coming
1: thank you nikki and jennifer
0: Absolutely. Thanks, you guys.